I think it was really, really important for me with Fear of Rain that we get the accuracy and not sugarcoat things because that is the reality of living either with a mental illness or with someone you love who has a mental illness. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Castile Landon's on the show. Castile is an actor, screenwriter, and director who wrote and directed the psychological thriller Fear of Rain, which is now available wherever you rent and buy movies. Starring Madison Eisman, Harry Connick Jr., Katherine Heigl, and Israel Broussard, Fear of Rain is about a girl named Rain living with schizophrenia. Struggling with terrifying hallucinations, Rain begins to suspect her neighbor has kidnapped a child. But because of her mental illness, those around her don't believe her, and even she has a hard time sorting through what's real or imagined. When I researched Castile's background and filmography to prepare for the interview, I marveled at everything she has accomplished by the age of 29. She has 25 television and film acting credits, including a role on the film Sex Ed, starring Haley Joel Osment. She has an undergraduate degree from Harvard and a master's from Oxford. And she has written and directed three feature films and just finished directing two other feature films in the After film series based upon the novel written by Anna Todd. In this interview, you'll hear how Castile developed the story idea for Fear of Rain, what her thought process was when casting the film, how she dealt with last-minute casting changes during pre-production, why the themes and metaphors in Fear of Rain resonate with a wide audience, and what advice she has for aspiring filmmakers wanting to break into the business. You'll also hear Castile's thoughts on the challenges facing actors versus writers and directors, and how her experience as an actor has helped her become a more empathetic and effective director. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with actor, writer, and director Castile Landon. Castile, welcome to DreamPath Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. I'm, yeah. Are you doing anything special? Probably just more snow shoveling, actually. Uh, oh, that's romantic. Yeah. <laughs> we're kind of buried over here in Washington State. Where are you located? Um, I'm actually in Florida right now, so kind of the opposite. It's like humid and muggy and gross. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I've been in that Florida heat and humidity, and I used to live in Houston, so I understand the oppressiveness of the humidity. Yeah, oppressive is how I describe it, too. And I, like, you know, when you're in school, they tell you about the atmosphere of Venus and how it's like so strong, it would just crush you. I feel like that's what it's like going outside right now. And I not right now, like in a couple months, it will be like that. I hear you. When I was in Houston, I played football. Mm -hmm. And uh, they take their football very seriously there. So I took it as a first period class. They would wash my clothes. Uh, I would come back after school, another practice after school. And football in the heat in Florida well, and Texas are both huge football states. I don't know yeah. how they do it. No. Yeah. And your poor parents having to do that much laundry. <laughs> no, they did my laundry for me. That's how That's how seriously Texas takes their football. Oh, wow. The, the high the, schools actually do the laundry for their oh, high, for their nice. football players. Yeah, that's really nice. So you grew up in Florida. I did, yeah, until I was like fifteen, and then um, I moved to LA 
to act. Um, and I did the whole homeschooling thing and then eventually went to college, went back to LA. And then just like with the pandemic, I sold my place in LA and moved for the first time since I was 15. So like almost 15 years, I just decided that was it. I needed to, and I actually, I didn't move back to Florida. I moved, um, I bought a place in Kentucky so that I could be near my horses. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, that explains the, uh, horse themed screenplays, I guess. Yeah. The first two. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of like an easy, nobody wants to make horse movies or like they don't really make them, um, well, and they're usually very expensive, but we have horses. So it was very easy for us, um, to get those going. So it was like the best way to learn to do film. Um, I think is, is, you know, to make a film as opposed to just, um, going to film school. Going back to these screenplays of Albion and Apple of my eye, the horse themed movies, mm-hmm. you were saying that not many screenwriters like to tackle these screenplays and these subject matters, but you had access to horses and it sounds like you were following, following the old rule, write what you know. Yeah. I mean, I, from a, from a writing standpoint, I don't know how many writers write about horses, but, um, I, I meant, I guess more from like a production and directing standpoint, it was easy. So I kind of like my intention wasn't, uh, necessarily to set out to write initially. Um, really I came at the, came, came at everything filmmaking, um, as a way of, uh, creating my own content in order to be able to act. And then I found out as I started doing that, I found myself being like, I, do I have to, do I have to go in front of the camera? Like, can I just watch the actors doing what they do? And, um, so it kind of like all naturally happened. So the, the writing process itself, I would imagine that there's a technical aspect of it that you can't learn in a creative writing program, even at Oxford and Harvard, like the actual formatting of the screenplay. And that's something you could probably get from books, but what did you get from your formal education, which is very impressive, by the way, Harvard undergrad and Oxford masters for creative writing. What did you get from those programs that has informed your approach to creative writing today? So I studied English in undergrad with an emphasis in Shakespearean literature. And what I loved about that program was the diversity of just a liberal arts program and being able to learn from basically the best teachers in the world. I think that that's really the only thing that separates, or maybe not the only thing, but that's like the defining characteristic of what separates um you know an ivy league school from a a normal you know any other college right is that teachers that are there are like that is what they aspired to do they aspired to teach so it's kind of just a different experience learning from people like that so i'm really lucky in that sense and and because of the caliber of the teachers i was really able to sink my teeth into basically whatever i was learning and I think what's great about that is it really opens your eyes to a lot of different, everything is a story. When, when you're taught by a great teacher, everything becomes, no matter whether it's science or even math, it all becomes kind of a story as opposed to just like this thing we learn because we have to learn. Mm. Um, 
So I think being able, I'm like such an academic by heart. Honestly, if I could be in school forever, I would. Um, so, and that's because I like to study everything because I like to tell stories about those things. Um, and the creative writing, um, which I did study at Oxford for my master's, um, I, I think it really helped because I did this cross, um, cross genre kind of thing. Um, like it's not a screenwriting program or a poetry program. You're doing all, all of it, um, and experimenting. And what that does as a writer, I, I hadn't, um, I hadn't realized, I guess, because I was just writing screenplays at that time, really. Um, I learned how important different things are to incorporate. Like it really strengthened my screenwriting, actually doing poetry, for instance, because poetry is um, all about the economy of uh, language, right? Like you can't say you can't use too many words. Whereas, you know, when you're writing prose, what have you, you can right. really go on and on and on. But a screenplay is just like poetry in a lot of ways. You have to have, you have to be concise with what you say. So um, I think learning to kind of write across the media or genres or whatever, um, that's, that was really helpful for me. And then the actual technical aspect of screenwriting, did you, take any courses in that or did you just order a few books the Sid Field on screenwriting and all of the classics yeah I ordered the classics I think you know Save the Cat is probably my favorite of them um and I think just getting like a formatting program as far as like the actual technical elements do you mean like the formatting or you mean like doing a beat sheet and getting all of that stuff uh, all of it yeah. I mean, I think the, the format side of it is just easiest to get a formatting program and it does it for you. And as far as the technical, like setting things up, I am still learning that because I never want to do it. And I get into a crunch when I don't every single time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so when you were 15 and you were acting, Mm -hmm. Were you dabbling in writing at that point? Yeah, I would write like I would write a monologue for myself. I would write my own scenes. Anytime there was like an acting class that I would take um, where we were supposed to find scenes that we really loved to perform, I would write them myself um, because I mean, sometimes I wouldn't. But um, but that's really I think where it started was writing that um, material to be able to play a character I wanted to play because I just mm -hmm. didn't see myself um up on screen a lot of the time like I, I didn't feel like I was represented um very accurately and and or like that there weren't interesting enough characters because I was a teenage girl and really like so many of the portrayals of teenage girls are kind of daft or they're just like a foil. Um, so I wasn't really interested in any of that. <laughs> so you're in the acting world for a while and then you head off into academia. Mm -hmm. And when you were in college, undergrad, and doing your master's at Oxford, were you 
acting at that point? Were you continuing to write creatively outside of school? What was your trajectory there creatively? Um, so at some point during my undergrad, um, and I think it was pretty early on, I, I do remember I made, I made my first movie as a director. I went and made Albion in Bulgaria. And I remember that because I would have to get up at like two in the morning to be able to zoom like this whole pandemic thing where everybody's complaining about like, Oh man, we have to do college from home. I actually (laughs) did that a lot. Um, Cause I was, I was working and, and working in Bulgaria full day, you know, your 12 hour, 14 hour day, and then logging on and, um, doing classes at that time. I can't remember what year that was though. So I, I was working simultaneously with all, all the way through both of my degrees. And the, um, the themes of disability in apple of my eye and in fear of rain, was that intentional on your part to take a character and saddle them with these very specific rules of their world through that disability? And the reason I ask that is that I'm finding, as I talk to more screenwriters, that the more specific the world is, the easier it is to tell that story in a compelling way, whether it's a specific setting they're in, a specific religion, or science fiction set of rules. But here you've chosen schizophrenia for fear of rain and blindness for apple of my eye to kind of create these specific rules. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that device and storytelling. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I've never actually thought of it that way before. I mean, as far as like having rules set out, I actually, I think I really gravitate towards adapting novels or adapting existing material. So I would say that's definitely something I love and probably a lot of writers love. I don't know in those instances whether I was consciously thinking of that though or not. I think more it, it's more a case of like I had an interest in imagining what it would be like to go through life with something like schizophrenia or or with you know being um, visually impaired, and so I wanted to explore that. Um, for myself and also kind of give other people the opportunity to explore it through film. Um, I think there's a lot of little communities of people or like niches that aren't represented in film. And that's what I'm really interested in seeing and doing. Um, So I think that's where it came from with those. But I, I do think you have a really good point. It's interesting because I read a lot about storytelling and screenwriting. And one of the rules that kind of bubbles up to the surface as a common denominator is conflict, more conflict. That character needs more conflict. And when you have a character with a disability like schizophrenia, which is largely not known to the audience, they, they don't have experience with it for the most part. Same thing with blindness. I would imagine that that specificity really gives you a lot to work with as a storyteller uh, and to let that unfold in a compelling way. And uh, I used to work at a psychiatric hospital for teenagers, children and teenagers, before I became an attorney, before I became a podcaster. So it was interesting in Fear of Rain to see how you captured that disability and how you portrayed it. And one of the things I noticed that you did really well 
was the disconnect between the protagonist, Rain, and her dad in terms of him trying to talk sense into her. Mm -hmm. And he would say, do you hear yourself? Do you hear what you're saying? And that look in her eye, like, what are you talking about? Like, there's, they are not speaking the same language. Mm -hmm. And when I had schizophrenic patients at the hospital, if you try to tell a joke to a schizophrenic who maybe their maybe their medication isn't right, or maybe they're just in a really low point in their illness, um, they don't get it. And they, they're just not on the same plane. And so I appreciated the research that you obviously did and put it on film. So well done. Thank you. Yeah, I have, I did do a lot of research and I think, you know, as you're say, saying that, I, I just realized <laughs> this is actually one of my last scheduled interviews and I am sad that I just am realizing that I have dated two people who have very much spoken different languages because of mental illness or just neurodiversity and it is very much it's weird that it just took like framing it in that way for me to even realize that 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 is the case right like you're mm -hmm. speaking two different languages and yeah that that is exactly what john and rain have going on um and both of them i think are, are speaking a you know kind of general language of love but yeah the specificity of that how they express themselves and where they are at any given moment is very different. And I think it was really, really important for me with, with fear of rain that like we get the accuracy and not sugarcoat things because that is the reality of living either with a mental illness or with someone you love who has a mental illness. Like, you can love someone and that doesn't mean that there aren't traumatic events that occur or that you don't say something you regret. And there was a lot of temptation or, or guidance from people that I think don't quite, didn't quite understand the project um, when we were in development that they would give notes like, Oh, he kind of seems a little like an asshole here. And it's like, when you're going through something like that and it's your child, you, you kind of lose your own self. You know, mm -hmm. he's, he's losing his, his, like his grasp on reality as well. Um, it does things to you that you wouldn't normally do in other circumstances. Um, and the more you love someone, I think the, the more kind of irrational you can sometimes be. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. There is a scene, and I'm not going to describe it in detail because I don't want to give it away, but there's a scene where I think the audience uh, will likely lose their affection for the dad uh, because of a conflict that happens with Rain. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're right. There's a humanity to that mm. in revealing that duality of man, that classic duality of man. We're all capable of good and evil, and this isn't necessarily a good evil situation but it's just humanity bubbling to the surface with anger and fear and these emotional situations sometimes result in that type of conflict and i'm not saying it's excusable but that's what happens and i think it's important to put that on film without sugarcoating it mm -hmm. yeah i think so too 
As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So your casting choices here, can you tell us about the casting process and what you were thinking with Harry Connick and Catherine Heigl? And the most interesting casting choice was Israel for me. And I thought that might have been maybe the most challenging one, too. Oh, uh, why is that? Because he was, and again, I'm trying not to give anything away on this interview, but his character had to straddle a certain... Um, mm straddle two worlds perhaps mm -hmm. and there was some ambiguity about him in the film that was not present in an other characters at least not initially and i'm wondering because he was kind of this perfect boyfriend how did you f seek him out or what was that casting process like and what were your thoughts going into the casting process in general yeah so i think the biggest thing for me with the casting on this was uh, a rain was finding the right rain because the movie really rests on her shoulders. If Madison Eisman had not been able to deliver the kind of performance she did, the film would not have worked. Right. Um, and of course I didn't tell her that going into it. It's <laughs> a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, but it, it was, we searched for a long time for that person and it was really important to us to get name actors for the parents because we wanted to have the freedom to cast whoever was best for the role with Rain in particular. So we, we saw a lot of girls. I had like a top three. And I think Maddie was actually one of the last people that came into audition. And as soon as she did, I was like, that's it. Like, just you, you knew instantly because she is, I've never seen anyone like her. I mean, I, I work with young actors a lot. And Oh, she's just so great. But, you know, the, the most um, nerve wracking, actually, in terms of casting was Harry, because I, I talked to Catherine. I'm very familiar with her work and that role. I think she really fits and kind of it, it made sense. But Harry, he doesn't do a lot of movies. And the last movies that I had seen him in were Dolphin Tail movies. So while I had seen him do really amazing, I mean, not that he's not amazing in that, it's just so different from this, but I'd seen him do more intense roles, but it was earlier in his career. I had no idea what was going to show up on set. And, and with those big name actors, you don't get to audition them. You just mm -hmm. make offers. <laughs> um, but what I loved about him was that he is so lovable because like you said, there are moments in this movie where we don't always love him um he does do some you know awful things um that would be i think unforgivable in the eyes of the audience if you had the wrong actor in that role right um so like to be able to go head to head with this young girl who's going through this but also be someone that the audience gives the benefit of the doubt to and can see how much he loves her um that was a challenge and it wasn't until the first scene that I, I was kind of sweating it up to that point because he could have been, for all I know, he could have been some kind of cheese ball, you know, actor uh, at this point in his career. <laughs> but 
thank God he's not. He's so good. <laughs> and he That's just got so better funny. better. Yeah. He has so much charisma, I think, because of his musical career. That, mm-hmm. And it's a testament to how beloved he is in the musical world that he's still relevant and he's still putting out great music. Mm-hmm. But when you are performing the way he does, and I've seen him perform live, I was actually on his float in Mardi Gras a couple of years ago. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, I thought when I was going to be on his float, I would get to meet him, but this float is like 10 miles long. So oh. there was no <laughs> no chance of meeting Harry Connick. But um, he is so charismatic mm-hmm. that he just lights up the screen. So you're right. There's this instant affection for this character, and that gives him the freedom to kind of make some mistakes. Mm-hmm. So um, what a fortunate turn of events for you <laughs> without yeah. an audition. Yeah. And he's just such a kind human being. So to be able to, like, because there is a component of this where when you're act, asking actors to go to such a dark place, especially young actors, you know, they, they can sometimes lose themselves in that. And, and I even lose myself in it sometimes um, with this one. So to have someone who is not only wildly talented in front of the camera, but also um, kind of elevates the emotion or, or like just elevates the mood um, on set every single time he's there is so helpful, you know? And he put Madison at ease and he kind of became a father figure to her, like an extra parent figure to her throughout mm-hmm. the course of um, making that film. And I think it shows, honestly. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up how important Madison's character was in terms of the casting choice because, you know, when I was talking about Israel, I I was talking more about the fact that with Madison, you know that Rain's character is real and you know there's a certainty to that character and her role in the film. But with Israel, like I said, he's straddling these two worlds and he's also this very welcome presence amid this world of, of chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I thought he just did a great job in that role. I think so. but you know, what's interesting with him is um, we actually had, I cast a different actor who's uh, a friend of mine and very well known. And he um, bailed at like the last minute. And um, so we had not even looked hardly for other people. And like a couple, I think it was like a couple weeks out. I can't remember exactly, but it was pretty close to shooting. And we'd already casted Maddie and we had a chemistry read between the two of them and they were great together. So it was a real blow to me, especially since it was a friend. And it was weird because I, I went back to my notebooks because this film I wrote like three years before we actually got to make it. And as soon as I start writing something, I come up with a kind of ideal cast in my head. And I went back to my notebooks to see what, who I had written down and Israel was on there, like Hmm. on my list. And so we put the offer out to Izzy and he loved the role and and took it. And he's just, he's someone who brings a hundred percent of himself. He's not even like, it's so great because He's, he just, he can't lie, you know, Israel can't. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what makes him such a perfect Caleb because I I think Caleb's kind of like that too. He's just 
so authentically him. Right. Um, and luckily, authentically Israel is like a wonderful human being. Uh-huh. Um, right. So, yeah, it, I think he just has this kind of like almost childlike magic to him or, or kind of an innocence and an acceptance in that. You know, he's not judgmental and he's very similar to the character, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, or else, I don't know, maybe he just became more like the character around me because <laughs> of what it was. Because he's such a great actor. Yeah. yeah. So going back to Madison's performance, did you worry going in that you were going to find an actress that perhaps or you were going to be stuck with an actress that was not capable of that balance between capturing the horror of that reality, but also not overplaying it, kind of an overwrought performance? Because I would think that that would be instinctively where young actors go if they're trying to play someone who's crazy, quote unquote, or insane or going out of their mind, they're just going to go over the top and on screen, it's going to seem off. So how did you approach that issue? I mean, I think that was something that we really looked for in the casting phase when we were auditioning actors, because there is the temptation to overdo it and you see it in a lot of movies and it makes it very uncomfortable to watch. I think there's a movie out right now that is facing that kind of issue. I think that that's absolutely right. So it it all came down to auditioning. I mean, I I think it would have been something that I would have been terrified of had we had to cast some name actress in that role. And there there was a producer on prior to this that was like, we want Bella Thorne. And, And it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know, maybe she would have done it perfectly. But like to just put an offer out the way that we did with the other cast members yeah. um, without having the opportunity to see someone come in and, and do it. I think that might be where you get yourself into trouble as a filmmaker. I think with complex characters like this, you just have to see them do it because even the most professional or talented actors, I, I don't know that they could necessarily play someone this nuanced in such a way that didn't make you cringe to watch it. Yeah, that's know? a good way of putting it, cringe. <laughs> that's what it causes <laughs> yeah. in the audience. You're yeah. like, oh, ouch. <laughs> oh, God. And yeah. Eugenie's character, it's um, mm-hmm. she it was her character's name Danny. Is that the mm-hmm. name? Yeah, yeah. So right out of the gate, the very first scene where she kind of appears through the window mm-hmm. of, the, of the car, you're like, okay. Now we're in for something pretty fun here (laughs) because she's so eccentric Mm -hmm. and and, and lights up the screen in her own way. So what Mm -hmm. were your thoughts going into that casting choice? So that role was actually written as a man, Dan McConnell, and the producers couldn't agree on who we wanted. There were two people that we finally, we saw so many audition tapes for that role and it came down to two men and there were, I mean, just brawls constantly over who it was going to be. And we were down to looking at locations and I saw a picture of this house with the homeowner in it. And my friend who was the location manager was like, Oh yeah, she, she uh, owns the house. And there was just something that immediately clicked for me. And he said she was an actress um, and she'd done the hunger games. And I was like, I've never heard of her. I need to see her on tape for this. And she sent in her tape within like 24 hours because she just nails everything she does, I think. Um, and 
it was perfect. But it was also a huge change to the story because there's so many other elements that the character then takes on as a woman versus a man, things you lose, things you gain. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't think that given the turmoil over this character that my producers were just going to accept it. So I actually sent her audition tape without her or anyone else knowing to Harry because I thought Harry's going to dig this. Harry loves like interesting women. And he wrote back and was like, oh, you have to do this. This is so cool. And so I just forwarded his message with her audition tape to the producers and was like, guys, this is a great idea. And because mm-hmm. I think, you know, I got his seal of approval, they were on board with it. And, um, and then it became Danny McConnell. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant, actually. Yeah. Bring Harry in. Because once he blesses it, I don't know how you can go back from that. Yeah, exactly. I mean. Exactly. So the release of the film, it's now available streaming on all platforms, right? Apple, Amazon, um, everywhere people can buy or rent movies. Awesome. So what are your current and future projects that you're excited about? Um, Well, I just finished filming two movies in Bulgaria over the fall and winter. So I'm in post on those. And they're the third and fourth installments of the After franchise. So romance. And it's kind of living in a similar world as Rain. I mean, there's no mental illness. Well, actually, there is. There's addiction, um, alcoholism. But I I like stuff that is geared towards young women, honestly. And whether Mm -hmm. that's to kind of open up a larger discussion about mental health or about sexuality and how to express that in a, you know, safe way, both mentally and physically which I think these films do, that's exciting. And I have, now that I've done, you know, those three movies, Being Fair of Rain and then the two after movies, I have a lot of stuff coming up. (laughs) I would imagine. Yeah, I imagine this opened up quite a few doors for you. Yeah, it is. It's great. (laughs) Are you going to think about going uh, back into acting or are you going to stick behind the camera for a while? Um, I'm kind of open to doing whatever. I, I did act in um, in a movie last year that Justin Long directed, just kind of as a little fun thing. I love acting. The thing is, though, I it wasn't good for my own mental health auditioning because that's what acting actually is. And I think a lot of people don't understand that, like, you don't actually get to act very often. Mm-hmm. You are auditioning and you're selling yourself, and it, it takes a real toll on someone. Like. That's why those people get paid what they get paid because it is, it puts you through the ringer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, when I write something, it, I always get nervous to share it with people because it does feel like an extension of myself, but it's so much more personal, even when it's not personal. I mean, when I see an actor come in the room, I want them to do really well. I like every single time someone comes in the room, I'm like, this could be the person. And then usually it's not, but mm-hmm. I never have ill wishes. Um, but when you're on the other side of that table, man, you just are, it's a lot, you know, yeah. you feel like you're never good enough. So, so all of that is to, you know, it's a long way of saying I would love to do other stuff, but I'm not going to put myself through the audition process. So 
Yeah. I don't know where that leaves me. <laughs> yeah. Well, doesn't that experience, that personal experience with the emotional turmoil of auditioning give you something to offer actors when you are auditioning them? I mean, you have that level of empathy now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think it really helps. Um, like my background in acting, I think, is, is really helpful when working with actors, um, particularly with young actors. So I, like, I love that I have that background, whether I actually use it, you know, in the future or not, I think it's really helpful. What was it like? This is kind of a random question, but what was it like working with Burt Reynolds before he passed? That must've oh. been one, that must've been one of his last films. Yeah, it was. And, um, you know, he, he, I loved working with him. He's such a sweetheart. Um, and at the same time, like, it made me really sad because he was this huge movie star. And then to kind of see, I guess, him at the end, you know, going towards the end of his career and he had to use a prompter and honestly through, through like the month that we had him on set, I wasn't fully sure if he even knew my name, even though he was like, we constantly talked, he just was kind of a little out of it. But then I heard afterwards, he, he would like constantly talk about me, which was really cool. Um, and he, like we did a film festival thing together and he uh, kept mentioning working with me instead of the film that he was there to promote. So, um, <laughs> I mean, he, he was so lovely and he used to tell, oh God, I have this obsession, I guess you could say with, um, old Hollywood and like the kind of machinations uh, and he would tell me all of these stories about how he would date, uh, Lucille Ball's daughter. And even though <laughs> Lucy was, uh, you know, about the same age as him and he's right. like, oh, no, I wouldn't date her, her daughter. Yeah. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's the kind of stuff that doesn't really date well, but in, in terms of the jokes or the humor of people from that generation, mm -hmm. but still you you kind of have this reverence and this appreciation for the fact that he is this legend and, mm -hmm. and that was the humor back then. That was the movie star approach back yeah. in, back in the day. And you just can't ignore the performances of deliverance and cannonball oh. run and kind of the, the cultural impact that that guy had. Yeah. And, and honestly, like I love working with older actors. There is a difficulty working with older actors because, um, it's hard to remember lines. I mean, right. it's hard for me to remember lines, but once you start getting into your 60s, 70s, 80s, it is hard. Um, but there's just something so genuine. Like I, I got to work with John Cleese and uh, I've worked with several older actors and they, they, they also just can't lie. I guess that's a kind of through line with what I look for in an actor is like, it doesn't necessarily matter like all of the homework that people do and like the stress a lot of actors place into their, their work, all of the research and stuff. At the end of the day, it's like, can you just be genuine in front of the camera and be vulnerable enough to just be yourself without judging in, without these walls? And that's very difficult. But, but older actors just kind of, they don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you did such a nice job with Fear of Rain. I, I'm sure this film is going to go some great places and get awards consideration. I enjoyed it. And thanks for sharing your story 
with my listeners. I have one last question for you for my listeners. And, okay. and that is this, um, what advice do you have for young aspiring screenwriters, filmmakers to mm. break into the business? And it can be educational advice. It can be motivational. It could be whatever approach you want to take to talk to these young people, pretend they're in a room, they're about to graduate from high school and they're looking right at you. Yeah, I would recommend studying anything but film in college, honestly. I think looking around and consuming as much material outside of your realm of expertise is the most beneficial thing you can do. Being a voracious reader and consumer of film and also studying, you know, theoretical physics if that's what excites you or or really anything that you could then bring to a film is more interesting because we get in a place where if we're not exposing ourselves to different worlds, then we are only writing about writing or about filmmaking. Mm. And there's a lot of filmmakers that do this, right? So I think having a breadth of experience to draw from and keeping kind of a an eye on living a life of learning mm. is really important. Yeah. That's what I would recommend. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense because if the rule is write what you know, mm. the more you know, the more you can write about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's always metaphors and for like different ways of living that people can see themselves into. Like with fear of rain, I think rain having schizophrenia is relatable to any teenager who is experiencing as you know going to high school and feeling awkward like social awkwardness or the experience of being a woman in this world where people don't automatically give you the benefit of the doubt you have to kind of prove yourself mm -hmm. um that because that's what rain does in in the film right is she's having to like like prove herself to get someone to believe her. Right. And so even, even as someone that doesn't have schizophrenia, you can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Or I can relate to that as a woman. <laughs> well said and great advice, Castile. Thanks. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>